is um, Ephesians chapter 4, beginning in verse 17. So I tell you this, and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their thinking. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. You, however, did not come to know Christ that way. Surely you heard of him and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. And therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work, doing something useful with his own hands, that he may have something to share with those in need." Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling, and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. This is God's word. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in and look at it, all right? Father, um, I thank you for this uh, time tonight, and I pray now, Father, as we turn our attention to your word, I pray that you would uh, send your Holy Spirit to attend to the preaching of your word so that we would be able to see and be able to hear things rightly and truly, and I pray for your help then, because you know that we have no hope of understanding this apart from your help. So please come and uh, help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Over the summer, my wife and I watched uh, this really fascinating documentary called God Grew Tired of Us. If you've seen it, it's a a documentary that zeroes in on the story of what has come to be uh, called, or a group of people who have come to be called the Sudanese Lost Boys. Sure, some of you are familiar with this. If you're not familiar, basically what happened is that in the early 1980s, there was a civil war that broke out in Sudan, and it basically ripped the country in half. The north and the south were at war. It left millions of people dead and millions more as exiles fleeing from their own country and just basically stuck in refugee camps in the middle of Kenya. And so what happened is that international aid organizations became aware that here's this There's a huge group of just refugees sitting in a refugee camp. We've got to do something about it. And so what they did is they decided to uproot these these, uh, men from this refugee camp and and transport them basically into major uh, urban uh, centers in, in society. And so what a lot of them did was come over to America. And this documentary zeroes in on the story of a couple of these guys making their way from a dusty refugee camp in Africa into major urban centers in America. 
It's a really fascinating story. But it's interesting. They're, they're interviewing these people as they're getting ready to leave. They're like boarding the plane the next day, and they're interviewing these guys. And they say, okay, uh, what are you excited about uh, you know, your trip to America, you know, your new home in America? And one of them was like, well, I'm really excited about uh, moving to New York City, but uh, will there be a river nearby where I can bathe? And the interviewer's like, well, they actually have showers there. And, and the guy's like, what's a shower? I mean, you just have to conceptualize it. They've never, had, they've never used electricity before in their life. Anything that they've eaten that day is what they hunted and gathered that day. Like their biggest threats, their biggest problems are not the stock market crashing or losing their jobs. Their biggest threats are, are lions and hyenas. It is, a, it is a wild and dusty crazy place that they're living in and they're being uprooted from this world and being transported to America. And it's actually pretty comical at times watching their clumsy kind of adjustment into this new world. Uh, they videotape them as they're, as they're kind of flying over and they're, they're in the airplane eating the airplane food. You know, they give them those little trays and they're looking at these, you know, the butter packets that you get and they're like opening them and just like eating them like <laughs> candy. And they're looking at each other like, is this, is this milk? Is this cheese? I, I cannot tell. And uh, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. And once, once they get to the apartment, um, like the landlord is having to walk around and show them, here's how you turn the light on so that light comes into the room. They're like, oh, light switches. He's having to visually demonstrate how to use the toilet. Here's how you, you, know, you sit here, you flush it here. This is how it works. He's, he's having to tell them, here's where you put the trash. Like, you don't throw it out the window. You put it right here in this can. They're like, okay. Actually, the, the, um, the funniest part of the whole thing is when they go to the supermarket for the first time. It's worth the whole cost of getting the movie just to see their kind of you know, shock of a supermarket for the first time. It's a great movie. But what the, the whole point is that they are, they are having to learn the ways of this new place. And uh, they have moved countries. And as a result, it's a very awkward and clumsy adjustment into this new country. But they know they've got to figure out the features of this new place in order to get their foot in here. That's, why, that, that, that's the whole point of the movie is them adjusting into this new world. Now, why am I talking about this? Because the claim of the book of Ephesians is that you have moved countries as well if you are in Jesus. If you have trusted in him, you have moved countries as well because it says in Ephesians chapter 2 that you once lived in the country of the land of death, meaning where you are at enemies with God and you are, at, you are enemies with each other. It was, it was a country of spiritual death. And that's where you used to live, and you know that land very well. And there are certain customs about that land, certain customs about that country that we all know. Customs like you get ahead in the world by taking, or uh, you're very generous with your sexuality and very stingy with your money, or you, uh, if somebody hurts you, you retaliate, or you just write them off altogether. Or you kind of only look out for number one. These are the customs of that world, of that country in which you used to live in. But Paul says, if you are in Jesus, you have moved. You are in a new world now, a new, world now, a new country, a, a land of resurrection, what the psalmists call the land of the living. And here you are at peace with God and you are at peace with one another. This is the ways, these are the features of this new landscape. But Paul knows and you know that Getting adjusted to this new world is very awkward and hard and we're clumsy at it because what we like to do is we like to import all of the old customs 
of our old country into the current one that we're living in. Let me break this down a little bit. Uh, uh, Eugene Peterson, who's one of my favorite authors of all time, writes this in one of his books. He says, It is understandable that we will carry old cemetery habits and assumptions into this resurrection country. We have, after all, been living with them a long time, if you can even call it living. And so we require a patient, long-suffering reorientation in the resurrection conditions that prevail in this country. And that's what Paul is doing in this passage. He is reorienting us to the, to the new features of this new way of living, of what it looks like to live in the land of resurrection, the land of the living, not in the country of death anymore, but in the land of the living. And what he does is he, is he highlights two different things. And, and this is what I want to look at tonight. Basically, how the gospel transforms your identity and how the gospel transforms your community. And this kind of breaks down, I think, relatively easy. If you look at your sheet, the whole first little chunk is, is Paul explaining how the gospel transforms your identity. And then the second chunk is how Paul explains how the gospel transforms your community. So we're just going to look at these quickly one at a time, all right? Here's the first thing. Paul begins by looking at uh, us and saying and comparing our old identities and showing us how the gospel has actually radically transformed who we really are. And he begins by looking at uh, Gentiles who are uh, is somebody who is not ethnically Jewish, people who are Christians but who are Gentiles in their ethnicity. And he's saying to them in verse 17, all right, y'all got to stop acting like Gentiles, which is very interesting. It's kind of ironic, I think. He's looking at Gentiles and saying, y'all got to quit acting like Gentiles. What he means is, is that y'all may be ethnically Gentiles, but there is a deeper part of who you really are. You may be ethnically Gentile, but, that, but that's sort of a, that's a word in the Bible that refers to at many times somebody being cut off from the covenant promises of God. Meaning, here's somebody who's not a Christian. And so what he does for the first part of this passage is explain what it looks like to be someone who is not a Christian. Or if you are a Christian, he explains what life looked like before you were one. And so here's where he begins. Here's the first element of what it looks like to live as a Gentile, as, as somebody who is not a believer in Jesus. Here's the first element. He says that they have darkened minds. Here's verse 18. It says, They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God. Here's the idea. The idea is that intellectually... They are out of touch with what is really true and what is really beautiful and with what is really good. So, for example, um, when I was in college, uh, me and one of my buddies went backpacking through Europe, kind of did that thing for a few weeks. And one of the things that we did is, you know, what you have to do is you kind of, you got to go into these museums and there's like a museum on every corner in Europe. And you go into these museums and there's just, they're stuffed with art and we're walking around, you know, idiot college guys looking at these paintings. And these are, the, these are paintings that, like, for centuries, art critics have been analyzing and adoring. And we look and we're like, yeah, I, that's pretty cool, I guess. And just keep going. It's like we're, we're, we're totally out of touch with what's good, what good art is, and uh, what makes something truly beautiful. And I think that that's kind of the idea here is that when your mind is darkened, it's, it's like looking at what is really beautiful, what is really true, what is really good, and kind of being insensitive and out of touch with, with what it really is. It's like walking around with, your, uh, with a blindfold on. Your, your, your mind is darkened. You're out of touch with reality. Now, that's a pretty heavy claim. And I know that that sounds uh, offensive. And it surely may be offensive to some of you because certainly not everybody in here is a Christian. 
But what I want you to do is I want you to hear Paul out for a second because he's not, he's not calling you names. There's actually a, a logical connection here. And so if you can, just bear with him for a second and hear where he's coming from because what he's saying is this darkened mind, this being out of touch with reality is actually the result of a deeper issue. And the deeper issue that he draws your attention to is that there's something going on in your heart. Your heart has become hard. So here it is in verse 18 again. I'll just read it from the top. They are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to the hardening of their hearts. You see the logical connection there is a hardening of their heart and that is what produces sort of the being out of touch with reality in, uh, up here. But what does that mean to have your heart hardened? What does that mean? Here's what I think he's getting at. When you deliberately walk away from God and from the life that God has set up for us to live, what that actually does is backfires and begins to harden your heart so that it becomes a calloused and insensitive. It becomes thick and it doesn't, it doesn't make, uh, it loses its feeling, it loses its uh, sensitivity. It's kind of like, you know the first time where you saw a like, really gory or violent movie, maybe when you were like, I don't know, really young, and you're like totally shocked and frightened by it. But if, if you've grown up watching more and more kind of violent, gory movies, you just become slowly, slowly desensitized to it. So you can watch like a like crazy, violent, bloody, gory movie, and you're kind of like, yeah, I mean, I've seen a million of these. It doesn't really affect me the same way. But it's kind of the same idea, spiritually, is that the more that you walk away from God, the more desensitized you get, and you kind of lose that sensitive connection to who he is. Here's maybe another metaphor to help you conceptualize what I think he's getting at. You know how they used to have, uh, before paved roads, before stone roads, there, there, there were dirt roads. And so um, carts and buggies, horses and carts, uh, would ride over uh, these dirt roads. And as they would go through these same spots over and over and over, these grooves would begin to get developed, right? Where the thin wheels would just kind of wear in the same spot over and over. And these ruts would kind of grow deeper and deeper. And so once it got to a point where you're driving in and you kind of settle into these ruts... Once you get going, it's nearly impossible to turn the thing out, to get out of the grooves, to get out of the ruts. It's, it's almost impossible to get out of it. You can only go in that direction. And I think that's, that, that's the idea. The further and further that you walk away and the, that you move away from God, the harder and harder it is to go back. So this is the progression. The, the more that you walk away from God, the more that you deliberately ignore God and his ways, that hardens your heart. And one of the results is that it darkens your mind. It kind of, you, you begin to lose touch with what is real, with what is true, with what is good, with what is beautiful. And here's what all, the, all of this means at this point. If you are somebody who's not a Christian, the Bible says that your ultimate reason for rejecting God and for rejecting Christianity is not ultimately intellectual or scientific. It's ultimately a moral decision, ultimately a spiritual decision. Sure, sure, the intellectual questions are there. I'm, 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 I know that's the case. And, and if, if, you, if you would ever want to sit down with me and have those kind of conversations, I love doing that. I love sitting over cups of coffee and having hard conversations about things that really matter. So if you're open to that, you know, come find me. But the Bible is saying that's not the ultimate reason. The, the baseline reason for why you have rejected God in the first place is not intellectual. It's not scientific. It's that you don't want God to exist. And that is a moral issue. That's a spiritual issue. But the progression doesn't stop there. It's not just deliberately walking away from God, heart being hardened, uh, mind being darkened. There's one, la- one last stage to this progression, and it is a reckless 
lifestyle. Look at verse 19. It says, having lost all sensitivity, there's kind of the calloused, hard language, they have given themselves over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with a continual lust for more. When you turn away from God as your ultimate source of satisfaction, of your ultimate source of joy and happiness, the human heart is constructed in a way that it has to backfill that void somehow. It has to fill it with something. And so you begin, you begin to fill it with something, but you quickly realize how numb and empty that becomes, which just drives you to more and to more trying to fill it and to fill it and to fill it. It just leads to excess and it leads to abuse. It's the same sort of way that uh, porn addiction works or uh, drug addiction works. I mean, you, you, I mean, you're aware of this. You, you, know, you try something the first time, you kind of get a rush and it felt great. And then you uh, grow empty and numb. And so you go back to it to fill yourselves again. But after a while, the more, that, the more and more that you do this, you kind of build up an immunity to it, right? And it requires bigger and bigger dosages or bigger and bigger quantities to get the same sort of rush. And you know how just reckless and destructive this downward spiral goes. And it's the same way spiritually. When you run away from God as the ultimate source of your satisfaction, that leaves you empty which leads you to try and fill that hole with something. But it only leaves you more empty. So you go back to the emptiness, so you fill it with more and more excess, which leaves you only more and more empty, more and more excess. Down and down this thing goes, and you know how quickly it just feels like this is consuming your life. And I know what some of you, I know that some of you know exactly what this feels like, where it feels like life is just out of control. It feels like my life is unraveling before my eyes and I wish I could go back. I wish I could wipe the slate clean, but I can't. That's what this is saying. When you deliberately walk away from God and his ways, this is the destructive, reckless way of death that the Bible says that you're trapped in. But Paul doesn't stop there. He looks at the Christians and says, look, if you have been united to Jesus by faith, you don't live in that world anymore. Jesus has transplanted you to another country. Look at verse uh, 20. He says, you, however, now he begins transitioning and focusing your attention on what it means to have your identity completely rehardwired. So you're not like that anymore. Now he's looking at Christians and saying, here's how Jesus has redefined your identity. So he begins in verse 20 and says, now you know Jesus. Let me look at verse 20. It says, you, however, did not come to know Christ that way. It says that you actually came to know Jesus. You know, we can have this uh, interesting historical lecture about Abraham Lincoln. And I'm sure for some of you, you would find it very fascinating, very interesting. You'd learn a bunch of data about this historical figure. But you wouldn't know him like you know your friend, like you know your roommate. But this is saying, y'all didn't come to just know about Jesus, this historical dude named Jesus. You came to know him. Meaning he is alive and you met him. You have a relationship with him. And as it goes on to say, you have been taught in his ways. He has instructed you how to live. You know him. That's the first feature. And here's the second. That you not only know him, but that you are a new creation. This is this whole language in verse 22 through 24 about the old self and the new self. Here's where he's getting at. He's saying your old identity where you used to live in the land of death, you have been, that has been put off. You now have a new self. Your identity has been restructured. You now live in the land of the living. You are new. You are recreated in Jesus, meaning you have a completely different identity now. You know, my wife and I, uh, we like to watch a lot of movies. And uh, one of the ones that we saw recently was that uh, the Tim Burton remake of Alice in Wonderland. You know, the one with uh, Johnny Depp, Mad Hatter. 
Good movie. Uh, but, but it's interesting, uh, that whole movie takes basically a, a, a line out of the old Disney cartoon version and just kind of blows it up for uh, an hour and a half. Because you remember the old Disney version? You know, Alice is running around and she runs into that caterpillar who's, you know, smoking the hookah. And uh, you know the ca- what the caterpillar says to her? Who are you? You remember that? Who are you? That's the question he's asking to get through the smoke and the accent. But uh, that's the question he's getting at. Who are you? But Tim Burton basically takes that line, takes that question, and presses it into the whole remake. Because the whole point of the new movie is who is Alice? Who is she going to be? Is she going to be defined by her parents and their decisions for her? Because remember, they're the ones that are trying to like, set her up with this you know, uh, dude for her marriage. Or is it, is it her parents that get to define her? Or is it Alice? that gets to define her. What is her identity? That is the question of that movie. Who are you? And that is the question of the first part of this text. Who are you? Because the assumption is everybody looks to something and says that is what makes me me. That is what makes me special. That is what makes me different. But we, all, we all look to different things. So some of you may look to your looks and say that's what makes me special. It's, it's, uh, I'm attractive. Or some of you look to your athletic abilities or your academic abilities and say, that's what, makes, that's what makes me special. That's what makes me me. could be anything. It could be your GPA. could be your sexual history. could be how hardworking and uh, what a good uh, moral person you are. could be your car. could be your money. could be your family. could be anything. We all look to something and say, that is what makes my identity. That's what makes me me. But this is saying, if you are in Jesus, he is what makes you you now. He is the thing that is at the center of your identity. He is the one that you look to for your security, for your happiness, for your stability. He is the one that gets to decide what is meaningful and true and beautiful for you now. He is the center. But the question is, for the Christians in the room, is that true of me practically? I can profess that all day long. Yeah, yeah Jesus is, my, is the center of my life. Jesus is the one that kind of makes up my identity. But if we looked at your life practically, does it make any difference? That is a hard question to ask yourself. But I think this, question, this passage invites you to ask that brutally hard question of yourself and say, okay, I can say it all day long. Jesus is the center of my heart. Does it make any difference in your life? Because that's actually uh, where Paul starts to transition into the second part. Because he doesn't just stop there and say, okay, well, Jesus has given you this new identity. Now he starts to work that out into, okay, how does this work practically? So that's where he goes. The first part, he talks about how Jesus transforms your identity. And now he begins to look at how it transforms how you interact with one another. The transformation of community. So this is our little second point. And uh, you see that in, in verse 25 when he says the word, therefore. See that? Everything that follows is a result of what the first part is about. All of this stuff that just piles up all of these commands, all of these rules, all of these duties, it feels like, is, what, is the consequence, it's the result of what it looks like to have your identity grounded in Jesus. So just for a second, imagine those Sudanese men coming back. They're in New York City. First night there. They got spears in their hands like, okay, we got to go get us some dinner. So they're running through the streets of Manhattan trying to find something to eat. Well, you know, of course... 
this would be bad, and the police would arrest them and say, hey, whoa, 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 you, you can't do that here. The, that, those customs are illegal here. You are in a new place, and you need to learn the ways of this new place. And that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, you have been transported into a new world because of Jesus, and here's what life looks like over here. Here are the customs of this new place. And so what he does is he highlights five customs of this new way of living, of this new place. And he compares it to the old way of living. So what I want to do is I just kind of want to quickly bounce through these five things. And by the way, I get all of these from uh, a guy named Sinclair Ferguson, who is a Presbyterian pastor in Columbia, South Carolina. And he wrote a commentary on the book of Ephesians, and this was really helpful. So here's the, here's the five customs that he lays out, and I'll just work through this quickly, because I think they're actually relatively straightforward. And you'll understand what, what I mean. Here's the first custom of this new way of living. Truth must replace falsehood. Here it is in verse 25. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to his neighbor. You see the contrast there? In the community of Jesus, because Jesus is our security, we don't have to lie anymore. Meaning, we don't have to bend the truth about ourselves anymore. We don't have to kind of hide this bad thing and amplify this good thing anymore. We don't have to bend the truth about our family, where we've come from, our sexual history, what we've done, who we are. We don't have to lie anymore. We actually tell the truth in this community, even the truth about ourselves. There's no need to lie anymore. In fact, lying and falsehood, that's not welcome in this new place. That's the first custom. Truth must replace falsehood. Here's the second. Constructive anger must replace controlling anger. This is in verse 26 and 27. I won't read it, but basically... The Bible does not equate anger with sin. It actually says there are some things that you do need to be angry about. Injustice, poverty, sin in yourself, sin in your friends. There are good things to be angry about. But this says if you go to sleep at night and anger is still controlling you, that's a bad thing and that's sinful. I don't know where the line is between good and righteous anger and when it crosses into you know, deconstructive bad anger. I don't know. I'm, I've been thinking about it all week and I don't, know, I don't know what to do with that. But I know that the Bible says there are good things to be angry about. But if you go to sleep at night and it is controlling you, somehow it is, distro- it is, dis- it is not helping community, it's destroying it. That's the second custom. Here's the third. Generosity must replace theft. Beautiful verse. Let me read it. Verse 28. He who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with his own hands so that he may have something to share with those in need. This this affects how we relate to our money now, this is saying, because, did you notice the assumption? He is saying, you've got to stop stealing because that prevents you from giving your stuff away. You're like, what? The assumption behind that is, in the way, this new way of living over here, You were made to give. You were made to give away your stuff, not to consume. And if you're stealing, this means that you can't give away. You can't do what you were created to do. So get to work so that you have money and resources to be able to give to those who need it. That's what it looks like to live in this new place. That's the third thing. Here's the fourth. Encouraging language must replace destructive language. This is in verse 29 through 30. It's saying, as a community of Jesus, now now we speak words of blessing and of peace to each other. When people have 
uh, needs, we speak words of life into those needs. The way that we joke, the way that we tell stories, the way that we speak to one another is for the benefit of helping and encouraging. And friends, we just have to stop on this point and say, we've got a lot of repenting to do on this one, and myself included. The recklessness with which we use our language, how, how, how casual we are with destructive language about other people, we've got to repent. We do not use our words well, and I'm at the top of that list. I don't either. You know, we smuggle in these deadly customs of this old way of life into the way that we speak in the name of Christian liberty. And it's just, it's, it's wrong, it's ugly. And we've got to repent over it. This says that it actually grieves the Holy Spirit. In verse 30, it says it saddens him. And it should sadden us too, the way that we use our words. We are so quick to rip each other up, either behind their backs or to their face. And we're so slow to use encouraging language. And we've got to change. Here's the fifth feature. Kindness must replace animosity. I love this in verse 31 and 32, and I'll read it here. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander along with every form of malice. That's the old way. We don't do that anymore. Here's the new way of living. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other just as in Christ God forgave you. I mean, the community of Jesus is marked by kindness and compassion, and we speak words of forgiveness to each other. We are against and we fight against slander and gossip and backstabbing and all of that mess. We don't, we don't do that here anymore. So just step back. Those are the five customs of this new way of living. I know that that's a lot and just piles up and piles up and piles up. But I just want you to just think about this. Wouldn't you want to be a part of that kind of community? A community where people actually speak the truth to one another, even about themselves confessionally. A, com- a community where people get angry at the right things and the good things to be angry about, not at stupid, petty stuff. Wouldn't you want to be a part of a community where people give away their resources to one another? Where people uh, are, 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 use their words and use their stories and use their humor as a way to encourage and, and address the deep hurts and the wounds that you experience? Or what about a community that is committed to kindness and to forgiveness? That's what this community is about. But you have to see, this is not just Paul looking at you and trying to guilt trip you and saying, all right, all y'all, play nice with each other. Maybe God will like you. Maybe God will bless you and accept you now. No, that is not the point. All of this is the result of what it means to already be accepted in Jesus. That's what the word therefore is there for, right? I mean, this is the... This is the result of why God accepts us. This is not the reason why God accepts us. You have to see that order. If you don't, this will be very frustrating and exhausting for you because you will have no freedom to fail. And we all fail in this area. But the gospel of grace alone is what gives us the power and gives us the ability. And what actually does is it transforms our communities with how we relate to one another. And so before we get off this point, I just want to ask you, how are we doing? How are we doing with this? Maybe a better question is, how are you doing with this? Because it's very easy to come in here and maybe try to think about that question and say, okay, how are we doing? Yeah, I don't like this group. This group uh, is mean, or I see these little cliques forming that I can't get into, or I, you know, I'm pretty sure I heard so-and-so gossiping about so-and-so, and 
Forget all that. How are you doing? How are you relating to this community? How are you using your words? What is it that makes you angry right here in this community? How do you relate to your money and your resources and your time as it relates to the people in need right here? Do you find yourself saying, I forgive you, or will you please forgive me a lot? Do you find yourself using those phrases a lot? I know that you're struggling with this because I'm struggling with this. And we need a lot of help in this area of what it looks like to live in the community of Jesus, transformed by the gospel of grace. It's awkward and it's clumsy as we try to do this, as we try to live this out. But Jesus has died and lived and was risen for failures like you and me. But the beauty of it is is that we are in this new place, trying to inhabit the ways. All right, let me wrap up here because uh, much like those Sudanese lost boys, if you are a Christian, you do find yourself in this new world that is absolutely hard and feels impossible at times to actually live in. And actually for me, myself, personally, I find myself in a new world because uh, I have a one-month-old at home now and has totally turned my world upside down. And uh, so I find myself in a whole new world as well as it relates to something completely different. But uh, ever since Zoe Kate arrived, I have a new identity now. I am a father, which is still hard for me to actually wrap my mind around. Uh, but I think that it's true. And, uh, but it has completely re-hardwired my identity. But it's not just this interesting little label that gets slapped on me, father. It's actually, no, my whole world is different. Practically, this changes my life. This changes my little community at home. Because, like last night, from 4.30 to 6.15 in the morning, I was rocking a baby to sleep. This changes my life practically. I'm now changing diapers and getting poop on my hands. (laughs) My life looks different. When I get home from work, I take the baby so that Catherine can work. The whole dynamics of our little community are totally different. My identity has transformed this community. And this is the same thing that's going on in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul is looking at you. And saying, look, if you are in Jesus, you have a new identity. You are not in this country of death anymore. You are in the country of life. But it's not this interesting little label that gets slapped on you, Christian. No, it actually simultaneously begins to radiate into every area of your life of how you do friendships, of of what we've been talking about, the transformation of communities. It makes your life look differently. But the question is, if it doesn't, If your life doesn't look differently, if your relationship with community and relationship with others, if it doesn't look like this, then the logic of this passage says that the problem is that you are grounding your identity in something else other than Jesus. That's the logic of this passage. If you are failing in community, the problem is a root issue that something else has become your savior other than Jesus. And so what this, what this text is, is an invitation for all of us, for those who are good at community, for those who fail at community, to go back and to believe the gospel again. And the gospel is this, that you are more sinful and selfish and messed up than you ever thought you were. And yet at the same time in Jesus, you are more accepted and loved than you could have ever imagined. That is the gospel and that is the invitation for you and for me to believe it. Please pray with me. Father, I pray that you will um, uh, invade our hearts in a new way. Give us eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. 
Give us uh, faith to trust that we are in a new world now, a new world with different customs and the ways of death that we try to smuggle in are deadly and they're ugly and they try to destroy us and they destroy our friends. And I pray, Father, that you would give us grace to fight against it. And Father, give us grace to trust and believe the gospel again. You are good and you are for us and you forgive us when we fail you. And for that, we uh, are grateful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.